Greyhound leader to trap one. Emergency alert to all radar stations. Welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark McManus, and my co-host today is Jason Miller. Hi, Jason. Good afternoon, Mark. Great to hear from you again. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, thank you for making the time to come back on. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about the recent Blu-ray le- release of Season 18. Season 18 is one of my favorites. I started watching the series on PBS with Season 20, but I discovered the show through the novelization of Logopolis, which of course is the closing story to season 18. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until about nine or ten months into my fandom that my PBS station cycled back around to showing season 18, half of which I'd already read through the novelizations at that point. So I saw season 18 out of order, but it speaks to me far more than many of the surrounding seasons. And what's your favorite story or your favorite stories from the season? Uh, with the exception of Meglos and Warrior's Gate, five of the seven stories were my favorite. And now that I've matured and I finally understand Warrior's Gate, I would say maybe six of the seven stories are my favorite. Yeah. yeah There's you, objectivity for it. That's it. Yeah, it is a, a really strong run, isn't it? Um, I think the great thing about these Blu-ray box sets is, yeah, I'm watching a lot of, well, I've only... It's only kind of the, the, the second one I've got, but the, I'm watching the stories in order for probably the first time um, because I, I didn't see them on the original broadcast. Uh, so I think it gives you a different perspective, doesn't it? And I think they're probably ones that I don't revisit that often as well. Um, I think because it's sort of kind of the E-Space trilogy and the, uh, I guess, the Master trilogy or New Beginnings trilogy or whatever it's termed, um, and I always tend to want to watch those as a group, so it's... It's, they're not ones that maybe I'd pick an individual story of. Um, it's a bit like the Black Guardian trilogy as well. I, I tend to, if you want to watch them, I tend to watch all three. So they maybe don't revisit yeah, them when, as much. When you're a fan of a 40-year-old series, it is tempting to just watch your greatest hits, and then you watch the ones you like, and the ones you don't remember liking sort of fall by the wayside. But if you force yourself to watch in order, you've got to take everything, and that's a better chance for you to reevaluate what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, with definitely. 40 years hindsight. Definitely. I think for me, it hasn't changed full circle and State of Decay are still my favorites from this season. Noteworthy about, noteworthy about season 18 is previous seasons just stopped and there was never really an attempt to link all the threads together. I mean, mm. maybe you got that with some of the Hurtwee years when Barry Letts wrote the season finale himself. But with season 18, there was a concerted effort to build up two themes and to close out the season in a logical, self-contained way, which you just didn't get with a lot of the earlier years. No, absolutely. I think maybe the strength of, of just having Christopher H. Binmead for one season as well is he sort of put everything into it. And, and it, there, yeah, there's a lot of themes, like you say, running through it, aren't there? The sort of themes of, of entropy and prolonging life and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, and you have Romana written out halfway through the season, and, and Megapolis, they go back and they revisit that by saying goodbye to her one last time and ejecting her room from the TARDIS. Yeah. Something that occurred to me this time as well, with, with this being also John Nathan Turner's first season, and, and Christopher H. Bidme was new as the script editor, and there's a lot of kind of change. They you know, brought in, obviously, the new titles, and um, I think John Nathan Turner had already. Um, 
got rid of the the composer, hadn't he? Um, his name just popped out of my head. Uh, the guy that did all the Dudley Simpson. Dudley Simpson, yeah, he did the um, he, he saw that the, there was a lot of kind of he wanted to change a lot all at once uh, and kind of shake Doctor Who maybe out of the, uh, the, the sort of pattern that it had fallen into. Uh, and I feel like some of the stories maybe reflect that as well. You've got people who are the, uh, in, in Megalos, you've got the sort of the, the people who worship the dodecahedron who are, you know, sort of carrying on performing these kind of rituals and stuff that, that are basically meaningless. And, and on the star liner in full circle, you've got the, uh, the, the crew are just kind of going through the motions of maintaining the ship and getting it ready. Uh, I wonder if, uh, you know, if that was something that sort of filtered through from their, their ideas of, you know, kind of, because uh, well, the doctor comes in and he's, he's a force that sort of, you know, kind of uh, shakes people out of these things uh, and whether that was, you know, subconsciously reflecting the, the kind of new direction that the new uh, crew were taking it in. And if you build on that theme and carry it forward a moment, you also have, the leader of the regressive conservative group in Meglos is literally played by a former companion from the show's past. Yeah. So it's, it's the past opposing the future. You have State of Decay, which is a static society working backwards. Mm. Now, I realize State of Decay was written three years earlier, but it fits into the themes of the season. Yeah. And then you have Keeper of Trocken, which is a very static society. And Legopolis, the planet, is the ultimate static society where the people don't even talk. Hmm. Yeah, and and in all cases as well, it, there's a, there's that like say there's a sense of uh, holding back entropy and uh, yeah, prolonging life. You know, like vampires obviously like kind of uh, trying to live forever, and uh, the logop logopolit oh, <laughs> struggle with this word. The logopolitans uh, are uh, you know trying to keep the universe alive and all that kind of stuff, aren't they? So it's uh, there's uh, it is very very thematically strong like that. Yeah, and even in um, the, what I was watching, um, Warriors Gate probably most recently, and uh, the the captain of the the ship on that says something like, "Well, everything everything breaks in the end," uh, which it's uh, yeah, it all ties into the theme of entropy, I think. Well, at Warriors Gate, you have a ship that doesn't work, mm. and you have a crew that doesn't want to be there. They're in it for the paycheck rather than being actively evil. Mm. So, um, how else do we build on this theme? And then, of course, you have the leisure hive. You have the society that's been destroyed by war, and they don't age until the very end, and they, re they refuse to sell out to modernity. Mm. You could probably make the argument that every story in the season builds along the same themes. Yeah. Which is terrific. You don't see that again until Russell T. Davies takes over, you know, 25 years later, where every story is thematic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, it is a real, real standout. Uh, and this beautiful new box set we've got has is, is, uh, got some new extras on as well, uh, apart from the ones that we that we get that were also on the original DVD releases. Um, so one of the highlights, I think, is is the writers' room. Yes, where they uh, they Christopher H. Bidmead, Andrew Smith, Stephen Gallagher, and I knew I should have written this down. Uh, one of the two writers from Meglos, but I can't remember which one. It was either yeah. Flanagan or McCulloch. Yeah, I can't remember which one either. <laughs> that's bad. Uh, but yeah, that's um, it's a bit different from any extras we've seen previously as well, isn't it? It's quite a nice kind of just social setting. Uh, just the four writers sitting down, having a few pints and something to eat and, and chatting over. 
the um, the the season. And talking about the season story by story, what worked, what didn't work. This is something that you really can't do with older seasons because most of the writers are, are gone. Yeah. With the season ten box set coming out next, how many of those writers are going to be able to contribute? Yeah, it's not. For example, gonna be, it's going to be sort of. How many of them are still alive? I can Bob Baker, I guess. It's <laughs> Maybe Robert Sloman. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. Not sure. Barry Lutz is deceased. Malcolm Hulk is deceased. Terry Nation is deceased. Uh, we're talking about folks who've been deceased for 10, 20 years in some cases. Yeah. But when I was at Gallifrey One back in February, they uh, the restoration team was there. They showed about five minutes worth of clips from the season 18 box set, which hadn't come out at the time. Mm-hmm. So they teased it with a few minutes of the writer's room, and they teased it with the first minute or two of the new Logopolis making of documentary, which is new to this disc, mm-hmm. and which is almost as long as the episode of Logopolis itself. It features yeah. a lot of newly recorded material. And yeah. they also teased it with some of the special effects which have been revamped for Logopolis. So just that, this is shown to a ballroom full of you know 500 to 1,000 fans, and we were all sitting there enraptured at how great the new material looked. This is not a slapdash set. They put a heck of a lot of thought into putting the new season 18 box set together. Yeah, absolutely. It really feels like that with the Blu-rays, doesn't it? Because I think some of the the later DVD releases, um, well, when they, when they got back um, the Web of Fear and Enemy of the World, they, they just brought those out as vanilla releases, didn't they? Although um, Enemy of the World's had a, a special edition since. Um, and then when the Underwater Menace uh that was very, very light as well, wasn't it? So it's it's nice that it feels like there's there's effort being put back into them again. Uh, Which is almost problematic for me, and here I am with my entitled fan, fan complaining, but when they started releasing the classic series to DVD in 2001, it was eight episodes per year. And that gave me a chance to watch every second of every episode and look for the special features on each disc. And I could just about keep up. Mm-hmm. But now they're releasing eight stories every three months because you have a new season coming out every three months, which is a demanding pace. And yeah. I find myself compromising. I'm no longer watching every feature for every story. I'll sit there with my old Blu-ray, with my old DVD, and I'll just watch the features that I haven't already seen. Yeah. Which enables me to skip about half of it. And I had to make the conscious decision not to watch all the raw studio footage and not to watch all the film trims because otherwise it would take me a year to watch the, the season and they're coming out with three or four seasons a year. Yeah, that is true. Um, I we mean, are spoiled for choice in the best possible way. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, as far as we can tell, this might be the, the final version of these. Um, you know, how, how, in terms of how much they can improve the, the quality of the pictures and stuff. Um, and certainly, you know, with, with physical media on its way out. So I guess we've got these forever. So we you know, I can revisit it and watch some of the, um, you know, some of like the, like you say, the, I haven't really watched the, the outtakes and stuff, but the less interesting stuff, it's there to sort of enjoy again in the future. Next time you, you pick it out. Right. I mean, I'm 45 now. If these discs last another 20 years. So I'll be a senior citizen on social security and Medicare when I am able to stop watching these discs. <laughs> so it's going to take me almost the rest of my life. <laughs> that's a life well spent this depressing thought for the day is brought to you by Jason yeah. <laughs>
so the, the other thing I thought was nice about the writers' room, I really enjoyed uh, Andrew Smith um, really sticking up for Terence Dix in there. Um, obviously, we've seen a little bit. Uh, well, I think it's on the um, State of Decay making of documentary that, that isn't new for this set, where Christopher H. Bidme talks about changes that he made Terence Dix make to the script. Uh, and that Terence Dix was apparently in tears down the phone about this. Um, and then last month, Terence Dix wrote to Doctor Who magazine and got the letter of the month because he said none of that happened. And in fact, the director um, and Barry Letts, who was the executive producer at this point, both insisted that the script was put back to how it originally was before Bidmead sort of uh, tinkered with it too much. So uh, it was given that there seems to be a little bit of sort of... Uh, animosity maybe uh, I think it was really nice to have Andrew Smith in there really kind of uh, kind of giving it a very spirited defence of, uh, of Dix and his le- legacy I have three thoughts on that Bidmead slash Dix kerfuffle if you'll indulge me for a moment so thought number one where was Terence Dix ten years ago when that DVD first came out this is not new information this is a statement that Bidmead made 10 years ago when he recorded the original making of documentary for State of Decay. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the 10 years that have elapsed since that original documentary came out, Bidmead had a full head of salt and pepper hair, and now he's a bald <laughs> man with wisps of white at the back of his head. Uh, again, this is not information. How did Terrence Dix not catch this in 2009? Second of all, State of Decay is long been one of my favorite stories. The production values are gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And Bidme did work some of his material into the script, and I'll tell you how. In episode one, Tom Baker uses the word technocophica, yeah. and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, to refer to a museum of technology. Terrence Dix gets to write the novelization of State of Decay. He leaves the word in. And then he puts an aside where Romana asks him what the word means, and the doctor says he probably made it up. So Terrence Dix got to throw shade at Christopher H. Bidmead in the year 1980, or whenever that book comes out. So that shows you that Bidmead did have some input into the final script. Mm-hmm. Third of all, I love both of those guys. Their novelizations are among my favorites. Terrence Dix is one of my heroes. Mm-hmm. Chris Bidmead is one of my heroes, and he was the first of the classic series writers that I got to interact with because he was the first of the classic series writers to join Rec Arts Doctor Who in the early 1990s talking about his stories. And then Johnny Byrne followed him a few months later. So I don't want there to be a fight between those two guys. I want to keep them both. So yeah, hopefully they can learn to get along for the next generation of releases 20 years from now. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. It's a shame Terrence Sticks wasn't wasn't on the, the Writer's Room documentary, I thought, as well. Uh, whether yeah, I don't know what that was about, unfortunately. Yeah. Maybe there's a perfectly good explanation. Maybe he didn't want to be in the same room as Bidmead. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it depends how, how deep that runs, I suppose, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I thought uh, when, when they were sort of talking over the scripts and uh, Bidby was talking about you know the, the bits he had to change. It was nice how generous he was with the writers, and uh, he was talking about because they'd all obviously rewatched the stories fairly recently, and he's talking about how uh, you know these lot of the best bits were the bits that the writers originally put in. Um, 
and uh, they, they complimented him on the script for Logopolis and particularly, and it is a brilliant line, um, Tom Baker's final line, the, uh, it is the end but the moment has been prepared for. Um, and Which then, is a, a, terrific, a terrific final statement, yes. Yeah, and they were all too polite to bring up the really silly TARDIS flooding bit at the start of Logopolis as well, so it was, uh, it was a nice congenial <laughs> chat, wasn't it? <laughs> I, I watched Logopolis again last night, and along with the making of documentary and the behind-the-sofa bit, which I guess we'll talk about in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. I usually watch Doctor Who 25 minutes at a time. I usually do not watch all four episodes at once, but with the recording deadline for this looming and me not having watched every second of the disc, I had to binge-watch Logopolis. What amazes me is how much it flies by. It is not boring at all, mm-hmm. and how crackling the dialogue is. I realized that I've inadvertently internalized much of the dialogue from that story, and it was like listening to myself talk almost after all the years. <laughs> I probably first I first read the book in January 1985, so we're coming up on the 35th anniversary of my first seeing the script for Logopolis. And so many little lines from that story have just become things that I say on an almost daily basis. So... It was like watching myself talk. So I just love the the Legopolis script pieces. And yes, there are probably some fair criticisms to be launched about some of the moments that don't go anywhere, like the TARDIS flooding Mm -hmm. and the fact that you don't reach Legopolis until the end of part two. But I I love the script. I'm watching it all at once. just highlights for me how great a script that is, even after all this time. Yeah. I think as as the series, as the season goes on, there's the sort of, Seems like there's less and less humour, but they, there's some really standout parts in it. Um, but I think probably because there's like, especially than the sort of season seventeen, uh, so the, the humour that isn't there maybe stands out more. And the, the two lines I really love are when uh, um, Tegan's talking about Aunt Vanessa, and um, he sort of describes he says like a white hat or something like that, and she says, uh, "Yeah, have you seen her?" And he goes, a little of her, <laughs> which is a really kind and of... And the, on the behind-the-sofa clip, when uh, Keegan and Nissa and Wendy Padbury are sitting on the couch watching the story, giving their live reaction, the three of them got a hoot out of that line. Yeah. Very little of her. Yeah, it's, it's So great. the actresses enjoyed it, too. And uh, there's a difference between humor and wit, though. I think with a lot of the middle Tom Baker years, when he was sort of taking over and acting around the script, doing what he wanted... There was a lot of over-the-top humor. I mean, the mm. absolute low point being the my fingers, my arms, my toes, my everything in the Nightmare of Eden. Yes, yes. Season 18 <laughs> doesn't have humor, but it has wit. There's a lot of genuinely funny lines organically worked in. Yeah, that's true. The, the other one that I really like is when the um, the, the police officers are saying about, you know, down, down at the station, and he says something like, well, it seems to me we're going to be very busy down at this station of yours. <laughs> Um, and it's uh, yeah, that always uh, always tickles me as well. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's um, it is wit rather than uh, you know the kind of the, the daft humour, isn't it? Um, but yeah, the the behind the sofa features uh, really really enjoyable. Uh, so you've got the the two sets of, of people watching the stories. Uh, you've got Janet Fielding, Sarah Sutton, with Wendy Padbury, uh, and on the other sofa, Tom Baker, John Leeson, uh, and June Hudson. It was always the costume designer for, for season 18. Um, and she seems to have been Tom Baker's personal muse. He talks yeah. about her quite a bit. So you imagine they're very good friends. Yeah. Um, 
Over here, there's a, a quite a popular TV show called Gogglebox. I don't think it's on in, in um, the US. John Oliver did a little bit on it on last week tonight, a few weeks ago. Uh, and he showed some clips and things. And that is basically just different families from around the UK watching TV and, and commenting on it. So I think there's probably a big inspiration for uh, for Behind the Sofa. Uh, and it's uh, I think it works really well on these discs. Um, we've seen the season 19 one. Uh, you, well, you had Mark Strickson, didn't you? He wasn't, wasn't in that season. But getting Wendy Padbury from... The show's past, I thought, was a, was a really, really nice idea. She and Janet Fielding are quite good friends, I believe. I was at one of the Long Island conventions. That's mm. a non-defunct convention that ran for about five or six years. But the two of them would do panels together. Right. Yeah, I think uh, you could tell they must be quite good friends to uh, to have the kind of repartee that they have, um, which is uh, really kind of deliciously sort of bitchy and stuff, isn't it? They, <laughs> they have a very good double act going, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really good. Um, and uh, I only have two minor complaints about the Behind the Sofa series. Number one, the camera angle. If you notice, the camera is pulled too far back in front of the sofa. So Tom Baker and John Leeson are both wearing <laughs> pants that are way too short. And you see them both wearing pale, translucent, old man socks. And in Tom Baker's case, you can see far too much of his shins. Now, Wendy Padbury compensates for this by covering herself with a blanket. They probably should have moved into a close-up so that you're not looking at these translucent socks and old man shins over and over again over the course of you know, 25 minutes per story, seven stories on the disc. Somebody could have been a little more generous to the two actors that way. Yeah, I did. I did that did occur to me as well when I was watching it. Because um, I wondered how long it took them to to film that as well, you know, how many episodes did they make these actors sit down and watch every day um, to to come up with these kind of uh, you know, pithy comments and observations on? They're wearing the same clothes throughout, so if I had yeah. to guess, they recorded the whole thing in one day, and mm. I guarantee they were not watching the full ninety minutes. They probably were shown a compilation of twenty or twi- twenty five minutes each. Uh, right. And yeah, we're, seeing, we're, we're seeing an edited reaction to an edit, edited broadcast. Uh, that hadn't occurred That's to me. That's my guess. Yeah, that does make sense. Um, yeah, like you say, because it's, it is it is as though Tom Baker and John Leeson haven't even got up off the sofa <laughs> at all in that time. Otherwise, the, the bottoms of the trousers would have fallen back down, wouldn't they, into position. Yeah. <laughs> and we're talking about actors who are largely in their 60s and 70s especially with Tom and John they're going to have to take a break to use the restroom at some point yeah, yeah that's true the, um, and, and to have them watch 90 minute, to have them watch 7 90 minute stories in the same day kind of counts as elder abuse yeah. <laughs> yeah I think they would have been asleep wouldn't they at some points of it as well I, I would have fallen asleep but I'm much younger than them yeah um, and, and the other thing I would have done differently is this I realize he's got a very busy schedule. I realize you're not going to have Peter Davison wait around the studio for eight hours. But when the camera pulls back to the couch after they show the regeneration, I would have had Baker off the couch and Peter Davison sitting there. Yeah, that would have been a, that would have been a great touch, wouldn't it? Yeah. Now, again, logistically, that is a nightmare to arrange from a TV producer standpoint. But wouldn't that have been really, really funny? Yeah, even if um, if I guess they could have arranged something when they were filming the season nineteen. Uh, behind the sofas, um, so uh, even if he wasn't actually there, 
they they could have got a shot of him on the sofa to then sort of blend in or something. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I was wondering. But these are minor complaints. Yeah, I was wondering if he was if he was going to show up on the new Logopolis uh, documentary as well. Um, but uh, I mean, they they get so many people together for that. Um, it is it is fantastic. They've even got the guy that that played the Watcher. I don't remember seeing interviewed before. Um, and they have him and Matthew Waterhouse meeting on the embankment, and Waterhouse gives him the box containing his old costume. Yeah, which is in nice condition, isn't it? It's been looked after. Must have been in David Howe's private collection or something. Yeah, they, they say that uh, yeah somebody bought it at, at Sotheby's or something, don't they, for, uh, for a few thousand pounds. And then you also have Tegan and... Somebody driving Aunt Vanessa's sports car, and then you have Tegan and Nissa trying on their old way. Have Tegan trying on her old costume in front of Nissa. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a very nice touch. And some interesting stuff I, I hadn't heard before because you, you sort of feel like you've heard most of the anecdotes over the years, um, but I hadn't realised that Janet Fielding had become friends in real life with the lady that played Aunt Vanessa. Um, and she's saying she'd, um, the story about being on a drive with her, I think she tells it in the documentary and she mentions it on the behind the sofa as well about being on the motorway with her when she missed the turn off and then reversing back to get to the slip road. Which <laughs> when it's is, reversed. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that you see on um, these kind of police camera shows, um, you know, as, as uh, like, can you believe what this person's doing? How horrendously dangerous it is. So yeah, my wife is literally the, my wife is literally the producer of one of those TV police camera shows. So I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> These are the things we talk about at home after dinner. Yeah, uh, she spends so, all her day watching this footage. <laughs> um, another sobering point for me: when I first saw Legopolis, I was probably let's say eleven or twelve years old. So here I am, you know, forty-five, be forty-six in a few months, and now I'm watching Legopolis last night. And I have the text commentary on where it gives you the actor's age. Hmm. So when I first watched the show, Tom Baker was ancient to me. Auntie Vanessa, if I had to guess, I would have said she was 80 years old. <laughs> John Fraser, who plays the monitor, one of my favorite guest stars, by the way. Hmm. I would have guessed he was in his 60s. No. Tom Baker turned 47 during the recording. So he's a year older than I am now. And Vanessa would have been 51. And John Fraser, who played the monitor, would have been 48. Mm. So I'm not looking at actors who are roughly my age for a show that I first watched when I was 11 or 12. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would have been the same. Probably, uh, I mean, it was a re repeat that I saw uh, in the 90s when I watched them. Um, but even um, I would have been younger than Matthew Waterhouse and everybody at that point. You think like Sarah Sutton and Janet Fielding were only in their early 20s then. Um, and yeah, I've overtaken them by some way. I just turned 40 this year. So it's, uh, yeah, we've kind of seen them from the perspective of, uh, of a child watching these adults and then seeing them as, uh, well, actually they were really, really young people then. Yeah. Matthew Waterhouse told a story, I think during the making of documentary that he turned 19 during the recording of Legopolis. He turned 19 during one of the film days. So we know from the Blu-ray commentary that they did the film shots in December 1980. Mm. So if he turns 19, standing on the Barnet Bypass, 
He was born in December 1961. It means that he just turned 57 years old. All right, his hair has turned white. That's happening to mm. me, too. He still has a baby face. If I can look half that good when I'm 57 years old, I will consider that a life well lived. He has aged remarkably well. Yes. Yeah, he has, hasn't he? He still has that baby face at age 57. Uh, and the another, um, which is a nice segue onto uh, another really nice feature that's on these discs, which is um, A Weekend with Waterhouse, uh, where Toby Haydock goes and spends uh, a weekend staying with Matthew Waterhouse and his partner in, oh, is it Hastings? I've forgotten now. It was a seaside town, but someone who spent only six days of my life in the United Kingdom, I would yeah. be the wrong person to tell you which seaside town it is. I, I can't remember now. I just, um, yeah, it's, it seems like quite a nice place. It's somewhere I've never visited, uh, and it, it does look very nice. Um, and that's a really charming documentary, I think, as well. Um, Toby Haydock did something similar with John Levine, didn't he, on one of the one of the Pertwee discs? Was it one of the special edition of Inferno or something like that? I forget which disc it's on. I know I was watching it in my old apartment, so that means I watched it somewhere between five and nine years ago. John Levine, I've met him at a convention. He's a profoundly odd man. He's a bit of a <laughs> controversial figure in fandom. Yes. And that documentary, Living with Levine, highlighted how strange he is. Mm. I was somewhat afraid that this was going to be the same kind of almost subtle hatchet job where Toby Haydock is standing back and rolling his eyes at the camera saying, isn't Matthew Waterhouse a weirdo? And there are two moments on the documentary that make Matthew Waterhouse look very odd indeed. To quote Tegan from Legopolis. <laughs> But I thought for the most part he came across very, very well, very well-spoken. Seems to have a very nice lifestyle. He has that really amazing library. He has the uh, archive of all the Doctor Who comics. Yeah. I would love to spend a weekend in that apartment. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was um, I was quite jealous of his library. Um, and yeah, he seems to, as I say, it seems like a really nice little um, seaside town. He's a short walk from the beach. Uh, it looks very nice. Um, I know he's got a great attitude as well, hasn't he, just towards life? And I hadn't realised about the sort of uh, the tragedies in his childhood. Um, which, uh, which it was very strange watching him narrate his older brother's suicide. That was an uncomfortable, mo- uncomfortable moment to watch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I had not been aware. Of that. No, um, but just even towards uh, towards Doctor Who and fandom, you know, he's not he's not been treated. Um, as well as most companions have probably, um, but he's still got a very sort of generous attitude towards towards the series and, and fans and stuff. I've met him at two or three conventions, um, and uh, he just comes across a really nice guy. It's, no, uh, he definitely seems to be in a good place, and he still yeah. records the new episodes for Big Finish, and he was, of course, part of many of the commentary booths. But you do get the sense from hearing some of the other actors talk about him at other conventions that he's not very well liked by his contemporaries. Yeah, it's uh, it's a shame. But I mean, I, I think when I was sort of eighteen or nineteen, I, you know, if I could, if I had been in a, a position where I was in the public eye, I think I would cringe every time I sort of thought back to, you know, the things that I, I did and said at that time as well. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, we have all said things at age nineteen. We wish we could take back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because those, those those things he said at 19 about punchlines for 
30 years worth of convention stories. Yeah. So those stories on forever. Yeah, that's it. What you and I did in 19 has been forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it was social media now, you know, kind of uh, teenagers are broadcasting everything over social media and it's, you know, it's a time in your life when uh, things seem like a much bigger deal than they really are and <laughs> everything's much more dramatic and um, once it's out there, it's out there forever, isn't it? It's, uh, it must be a, a more difficult time to be a teenager and then, and then to, to grow out of that and, and have the benefit of hindsight about it maybe and I think, oh no, there's a, there's a digital record of it all uh, in the way that there wasn't for our generation. The, the prime example being Chris Chibnall going on television to yell at John Nathan Turner yes. about how bad Doctor Who had gotten. Yeah. <laughs> it was reported somewhere on the trial of a Time Lord box set. Of course, now you have a whole generation of fans who are probably thinking the same thing about Chibnall stories. Yeah. 40 years from now, you're going to dig up a YouTube uh, vlog of somebody complaining about Chris Chibnall's stories, and that person in 40 years will be the new showrunner. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because, I mean, that's that's a kind of a fluke that uh, that Chris Chibnall was on that on that TV show and has become a uh, showrunner, but... Yeah, there's. I mean, like you say, there's uh, there's vlogs and podcasts and everything else now out there, aren't there? Yeah. Uh, so I guess the um, the other thing is that you say the the new effects on on Logopolis. Um, I believe they went to Jodrell Bank, um, which is well the kind of big radio telescopes. Um, I think it's in Cheshire, somewhere like that. Um, it's near where my in-laws used to live, actually, because we used to go down a couple of weekends, and we always said we were going to visit, and never got around to it. Um, but uh, yeah, I think they uh, they look pretty good. Where do you stand? According on... to according to the text commentary, I think the original plan was to use Jojo Bank as the reference, but it was too far from TV Center, and they couldn't make it in a day trip during their limited film allocation days. Right. So they used that complex with the buildings, which didn't have an actual satellite, and mm. they used a model satellite for the uh, satellite shots for the satellite dish. Mm. So now they have actual footage of the real Jodrell Bank, and they've seamlessly put that in to the episode, so it looks a little more organic. Yeah. Where do you stand on on redoing effects from from these decades old episodes? The Special edition, quote-unquote, of The Five Doctors came out, I want to say, 1996, 1997. Mm. I was still posting regularly on RecArts Doctor Who when that came out. And if you dig deep enough into the archives, you can see my highly critical posts of the special edition. And I've complained about the new effects in uh, one of the fanzines that I used to write for and on the Doctor Who ratings guide. So I've spilled enough words in corners of the internet and print world. My basic point is I don't think it's a great idea to take a dated special effect and replace it with a slightly less dated special effect on CGI. Mm. So typically, I appreciate the effort in trying to make episodes look contemporary. I just don't think that it always works as well as the producers think it works. And this is a very fanboy complaint, but they actually put the CGI artist's name in the remastered closing credits for Logopolis. So you're watching the closing credits now, and they've put extra names in the closing credits that do not match the closing credits on the original DVD 
or on my VHS off-air tape if I still had it from the 1980s. Now, this is a very fanboy thing to say. It's a very anodyne complaint, and I should be embarrassed for even saying it. But I've been watching these stories for so many years that the slightest change is a little bit disconcerting, even a change in the structuring of the closing credits. That's my fault more than the producers. They should not be blamed for my overly anal reaction to this. All that said, I think that the new special effects work very well for Legopolis alone because you had a glaring fault with the production where it's a very good-looking production until you get to an obvious model of the radio telescope and then you have the still photo of Anthony Ainley in the background as Tom Baker is struggling for his life on the gantry. Hmm. Both of those problems are now fixed because you have a more realistic telescope and the CGI now is much better than, than it was when they were drawing new special effects for the Five Doctors 20 years ago. Yeah. And they've been able to animate the still photo of Anthony Ainley in the background. So he looks a little better now than he did as a still photograph. Right. So while I'm not a fan of the new CGI effects in any events, I'm fine with the original funky effects dated as they are. In this one case, I think it does work and it does add value to the story. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I sort of, sometimes it's quite jarring and, and sometimes, the more subtle it is, I think, um, and the more, like you say, when it enhances something like like a still photo, um, if it's done quite subtly like that. Um, but otherwise, it's, you know, so some, some of the ones where it's um, like a CGI model, like the sort of the arc in space or something, uh, it can be quite jarring, can't it? Because that's, it takes you out of the story a little bit because you're sort of thinking, oh, that's new and uh it's different to all the other times I've seen it. Yeah. But with the five doctors, you were kind of forced to watch the special edition because the special edition was the only available version of the story for the next 15 years. Mm. Thanks at least to DVD, we can turn it on and turn it off. You can watch it if you want. You don't have to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes even double on the Caves of Androzani DVD where you had a wobbly mat during one of the opening shots. They, re they stabilized the wobbly mat, but they gave you an option to watch the original scene with the mat wobbling in the background. Yeah. That's the level of detail that I like. Yeah, definitely. So are you keeping hold of your DVDs um, or replacing them with the Blu-rays? When the special editions started coming out towards the end of the classic series DVD run, I gave away my original editions mm. of the DVDs and replaced them with the special editions. In doing so, I lost a couple of special features that were not kept for the special edition discs. But, again, how much time do I have to watch the DVDs? I haven't even noticed that some of those special features are gone forever. Mm. But for the Blu-rays, I am keeping the original discs. So now I have the original discs taking up two double bookshelves, and now I have Blu-rays on a third shelf. <laughs> uh, I've been, yeah, just for space, really, and, and because most... Well, it seems like pretty much all the special features are migrating across. I've I've been um, yeah giving away the DVDs as uh, the, uh, the the Blu-rays have come in. But I can watch the DVDs on my computer. I can watch them on the go. I can watch them on a portable. With Blu-ray, I only have one wired Blu-ray set that's plugged into my TV. My current laptop does not have a Blu-ray a Blu-ray drive. And the last two laptops that I had that did have Blu-ray drives. The Blu-ray DVD-ROM drives barely, barely worked. So it's really hard to watch the Blu-rays unless you're glued to your couch. 
So for me, I'm keeping the old discs so I can watch the vanilla DVDs uh, on the go if I'm on the road or if I have my laptop somewhere, which I, it's a luxury I don't have with the Blu-rays. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep them both at least indefinitely for the foreseeable future. Mm. Yeah, I'm just kind of space-wise. I'm thinking. Uh, I've got kind of a, a wall of shelves for Doctor Who stuff, which is getting pretty full. If I can shrink the TV episodes down by replacing the DVDs with Blu-rays, it's going to give me more space for future series and, and, and books and stuff they bring out. So, uh, yeah. I don't know. I might keep the odd one, though. You, you're right about that. I've got a portable DVD player that, uh, that, yeah, if I'm away with work or something like that, I can I can take a couple of stories away. Yeah. Which is what I did last summer. Last summer when I was in London, I wanted to watch Doctor Who while on British soil. So I brought the Kinda mm-hmm. DVD with me and I watched it. I would not have been able to watch it if I was limited to the Blu-ray because I wouldn't have been able to play the Blu-ray on my laptop overseas. Yeah, that's true. But isn't it great that we have this choice? Isn't it great that we're fans of a show where you actually have the ability to watch it in any format you want, even after all this time? It is, Absolutely. Um, and I guess you can, you can also buy them from iTunes as well, can't you? So, um, a lot of that's going to kind of be buying them again. Um, but yeah, I guess if, uh, if, uh, all other options ran out, you, you could do that in the future. But yeah, given sort of in the, the, you know, especially, um, in the UK, it was difficult to get hold of them at all, um, until the VHS, the official BBC VHS releases and then the, uh, when we started to get satellite TV in the 90s and they started repeating them on UK Gold, uh, it was, uh, yeah, they, it was hard to watch them at all. It's, uh, it's a much better time to, to be alive, isn't it? And be a fan. Yes. Yes, it is. It is a great time to be a fan because we can still watch these 40, 50 year old episodes mm. and the DVDs have so much care put into them. Mm. Uh, just to give you a baseball example, as an American, I'm a big baseball fan. You can buy entire World Series on DVD. I could go on Amazon right now and I could order all six games of the 1977 World Series, which was played partially here in New York. And I could watch those games, but the DVDs are unrestored. So you're watching what is now 42-year-old videotape, which is degraded with signal loss, and it looks terrible. Hmm. On the other hand, if I want to plug in the Sontaran experiment on Blu-ray, not a great story, it's not in my top 50. It's not in my top 100. And if I were stranded on a desert island with DVDs and a limited power source, I would not take some Tarrant experiment with me. <laughs> but the restoration looks so phenomenally good. Mm. And this is outdoor broadcast video tape, the same videotape they use to tape baseball games. It looks as if it was taped yesterday. That's how good and crystal clear it looks on the Blu-ray release. Mm. Any other American series released to DVD, which is 40 years old, 50 years old, is not going to have that same quality of look. So we are just lucky to have the best in the business on the restoration team. Yeah. And we have a huge debt of thanks for keeping the show alive for us. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing that surprised me, because on the, on the final disc, um, which has also got K9 and Company on, which we haven't talked about yet, um, the this um, uh, like a sort of an hour long segment um, of Tom Baker at a Panopticon convention, um, and obviously some of the old DVDs had footage from conventions 
but the picture quality is always really, really bad because it's just kind of somebody on a camcorder, isn't it? Uh, but that surprised me how good the quality was um, of, of that. Um, and it says, I thought it was excellent as well. Um, it's from, I think, 91, 93, something like that. Just Tom Baker on stage with a microphone, um, surrounded by adoring fans. Um, it really, I, thought it was, I thought it was excellent. Uh, I just watched that yesterday, and uh, even my wife was watching that and kind of laughing along with it. Very good. That must have taken a lot of restoration work. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, unless it was filmed more professionally, I don't know if like, um, you know, the guys like real-time pictures or something like that were there, but um, generally it's it's more sort of camcorder stuff, isn't it, from those? Um, but yeah, really, uh, some, and again, some anecdotes I hadn't heard before with, um, he's just kind of just freewheeling through it, isn't he, and then taking some questions and stuff, and uh, it's uh, it's a really nice, really nice little segment. Uh, and given the sort of, um, in Britain and America at the moment, you're kind of nationalistic times and stuff. He, he talks about how if you're in the, the pub and somebody's sort of saying anything racist or bigoted about uh, kind of how to react to it and, and not just to laugh along. And I thought, okay, that's from like 25 years ago. And it's, uh, you know, it's just, just as kind of relevant and, and important now. Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, really, yeah, a really, really nice feature as well. Um, and yeah, so the uh, Canine and Company gets its uh, gets its Blu-ray release um, along with a special behind the sofa uh, on that as well. You got John Lee. I've always been a fan of Canine and Company. I realize that it's a failed pilot. Mm-hmm. I think it works very. Well. It's very funny. Sarah Jane Smith is great. It's great to see Elizabeth Sladen again. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty honest. good story. To be totally honest, this is only the second time I've ever watched it. Um, when it came out on DVD, it was with... Uh, what did it come out with The Invisible Enemy in a, in a double pack? Uh, at least in, in the UK it did anyway. I think it was called like um, Canine Tales or something like that. Uh, so we didn't get as many box sets here in the States, but we did get a double disc, Invisible Enemy slash Canine and Company. Right. Yeah, um, and I watched it then. I'd never seen it before, and I watched it on that DVD, and then I watched it on this Blu-ray release. Um, and it was a lot better the second time. Um, I was kind of unimpressed with it uh, the first time I saw it. Um, the theme song, the, the Ian Levine penned theme song is yeah. unintentionally funny. Yeah. <laughs> I was sitting on a panel at L.I. Who several years ago uh, with Robert Smith, the author, mm-hmm. and we pulled up the opening credits of Canine Company on my phone. We're showing it to a bunch of fans who had never seen it before. <laughs> and the two of us were singing along to the Canine Company theme song. Brilliant. <laughs> it's very it's very catchy. Now, it's not a good song in any sense, and that's no. Ian Levine's most lasting contribution to Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> but it's very catchy, as bad as it is. It is, yeah. It does, it does get in your head, doesn't it? Um, and on Behind the Sofa, um, John Leeson singing along to it as well as a nice touch. Yeah. The main thing I remember from my first viewing is just thinking like, um, because obviously the view, you know that K9 is going to be in that box that's there waiting for Sarah Jane and it just seemed to take forever to open it. <laughs> sort of going, open the box, come on. And they're doing that on the, uh, the behind the sofa as well. Um, they had the exactly the same reaction uh, that I did the first time I watched it. Get on with it, get K9 out of the box. Uh, 
I think yeah, the series is called K9 and Company, so it's not really a surprise when you don't reveal K9 until the cliffhanger. Yeah, that's it. You want to you want as much K9 as possible because that's the uh, that for me is one of the disappointments of the Sarah Jane Adventures as well is um, there's so little K9 in it. Um, and that was for rights reasons, at least for the first couple of seasons. Whereas yeah. K9 and Company had no excuse because they had the rights. Yeah, because the because um, of the Australian K um, nine series as well, wasn't there? Which um, I guess Bob Baker was trying to get off the ground at the same time. Did you ever see any right, episodes? That ran, of that? that ran for one season. Yeah. Did you see any episodes? I had to watch the entire series, and I reviewed it for a fanzine that I was writing for at the time. Okay. And I was very critical of it, but they had an Australian fan review the second half of the series and they ran his review opposite mine and he was very enthusiastic about it I thought the K9 series had some good moments there was one episode penned by Bob Baker that was almost a remake of Nightmare of Eden mm. not a great series but it has its moments yeah. but they regenerated K9 and they made him fly now I can understand why they did that it's a drawback of the original series that K9 is a prop in the 1970s, and the only way you can get him in frame with very tall actors like Mary Tan and Todd Baker is to have them stop the action and kneel down and talk to K9. Mm. That's a problem you need to solve if K9 is going to anchor his own series, which is why they made him fly, so he can get two shots along with all the other actors. However, dogs don't fly, so it's <laughs> kind of an odd time. Yeah. If you're going to make him a flying dog, why not make him a flying car or a helicopter? Yeah. That's true. Um, the uh, I remember the, the in the first, I didn't watch the whole series, but in the first episode, you you have the original K nine appear at first, don't you? But he's kind of critically damaged and then um, regenerates like the Doctor does uh, into the sort of sleeker, more modern version that, that can fly. I might be misremembering this, but I think there's reference to him flying in the Sarah Jane Adventures, but it's not shown. I think. I might be misremembering that now that uh, that they sort of say that um, oh he's flown upstairs or something like that. Um, but in, yeah, the, in the pilot episode Invasion of the Bay, you see flying around the black hole. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because that, that's how he's sort of written out of it at that point, isn't it? That um, that's why he's not there. <coughs> but um, after the Australian series wrapped up and didn't get renewed, they brought K nine back for about the episodes I think of seasons three and four so he's in six out of the twelve episodes and I don't remember him flying in those episodes granted it's been about ten years since I've seen them yeah me too I thought I thought they didn't show it but I think I kind of thought that they mentioned it but I, I might be misremembering it as well because he goes off to university with Luke doesn't he I think when um, when Sarah Jane's adoptive son goes to university I think he takes K9 with him uh, which would be a massive uh, advantage uh, studying for a degree, I think. If you had K nine in your uh, uh, in your room helping you with your assignments and stuff. <laughs> oh, I wish I had K nine when I was in law school. Yeah. <laughs> so it leads off with the Leisure Hive. Love the story. Uh, visually, it's gorgeous. Now, yes, it's open to making fun of because you have the forty. I think the 90-second-long opening pan of Brighton, which starts the episode. Yeah. 
maybe not the best directorial choice, but it highlights the music and highlights the visual look. Uh, the story looks fantastic, and you know it's a funny story. Funny story. Yeah, it's nice to see Tom Baker acting old as well. That's um, I quite like those scenes. Um, obviously, now that we know what he looks like as an old man, uh, it doesn't look anything like that. Maybe they could have. Uh, maybe the next release, they'll they'll reshoot it with with Tom Baker as he looks now, and then superimpose him uh, back in. <laughs> that was a lost opportunity. He's aged much better in real life than he did under old age makeup in the Leisure High. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and he's a lot jollier in <laughs> in his old age as well than uh, than the aged Doctor in that, isn't he? Although he is equally forgetful. Yes. Yeah. That's the thing on some of those um, behind the sofa things, isn't it? It's like sort of three quite elderly people who aren't quite understanding what they're watching on TV. Um, it is a bit like watching TV with a grandparent or something, and <laughs> they're not really. And Tom Baker, Tom Baker even come out and says on the Legopolis making of that. I think he says, "Was I in that? I don't remember yeah. a thing about it." And yeah. I got a big laugh when that clip was shown in Galley One. Yeah. Yeah, that was like the Tom Baker years when they when they did they used to do those um, those years tapes that uh, I think John Nathan Turner produced, didn't he, in the nineties? Yes. Um, and for the Tom Baker one, it was a it was a double VHS pack, and he was sitting on the sofa watching clips and um, couldn't really remember very much at all. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, but once he got going, he had a few sort of anecdotes, didn't he? Uh, when he was talking about story about Anthony Ainley that he was playing cricket and he got a round of applause and when he lifted his helmet off his um, his wig came off with it uh, <laughs> that's right I do remember that yeah it's something that um, that Peter Davison talked about quite a bit I can't remember whether it was in his autobiography or in that um, around the same time Doctor Who magazine did a really long interview with him um, it might have been in that where he talks about um, how dodgy Anthony and his wig was and uh, how obvious it was but how self-conscious uh, that, that he was about it as well uh, so after that we've got full circle Meglos comes Meglos. next you're suppressing the cactus people I haven't got the odd rhythm in front of me that's right yeah Meglos yeah yeah I think this is probably the least successful story in, in season 18 isn't it for me anyway if memory serves me right and I may have said this on a previous recording the original plan for Gareth Roberts in The Lodger was to have the bad guy in The Lodger be Meglos, yeah. the Matt Smith episode, and Matt Smith didn't remember him. Yeah. But Stephen Moffat, one, had a different idea. The bad guy in The Lodger ended up being the silence, mm. and he ended up taking the idea of the doctor not remembering his past adversary in deep breath instead. Yeah. But it just shows you what fandom thinks of this story when your first idea is to take Meglos and bring him back and have nobody remember who he is. Yeah. I think if I remember rightly, I think part of the reason that they, they didn't use him in the lodger was because, uh, while they were writing series five, um, Russell T Davis was still making the, the, the specials and you've got the, the people in the end of time, um, who were sort of, uh, they were the green spiky skin, um, the, where they had the was it the shimmer that that, that uh, could disguise them as human, and I think there was a yes. feeling between the two uh, kind of production staff that that would have been a bit too similar. Um, that somebody possessed by Megalos has the sort of green spiky skin, um, and these I can almost remember the name of the aliens it begins with V I think, like Vorvach or something like that. Is it the 
Oh, whoever they were in the end of time, anyway. It's the. Um... No, it's gone. No, <laughs> I should have uh, should remember that. Um, but yeah, that was. Uh, well, it's starting to sound like Tom Baker. We're both forgetting everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jason and Mark, Tom Baker years. And and the bottom of my trousers are nearly up to my knees as well. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm wearing translucent socks yeah. for this recording. <laughs> Uh, so then we have full circle, uh, which is uh, which is yeah definitely one of the highlights for me. Um, uh, just a, a great story and, and and looks fantastic as well. The the, the marsh men, the the mist on the swamp and all that kind of stuff. I love full circle to pieces. It's got a terrific guest cast. James Bree is one of the deciders. Is terrific. Mm. You have. George Baker, who was the voice of James Bond in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. He's terrific as the other decider. Yeah. Yeah, once... And you have... Sorry, go on. You have Tom Baker auditioning all these young companions in the Outlers, and he's trying them on for size with uh, Varsh and Tylos and Kira. Mm. Even though Tom Baker had been... He was, he was, he was essentially let go from the series, and he was old and he was grumpy. I thought he was terrific playing off all the young kids in full circle. It's really a whole new take on his character. Yeah. Yeah, because even as a line in it, doesn't he, where with the with the Marsh child, and he says, uh, I normally get on terribly well with children or something like that. He's got that, uh, I think Matt Smith's got a lot of that as well. When you see Matt Smith with, with children now and again in the series, uh, it just works really, really well. Um, but uh, you don't get kids that often in the classic series. Yeah, I guess they're probably about as young as they, as they go would be, would be the, uh, the out, 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 outlers, are they called? Yeah, they're probably, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, Andrew Smith, obviously still, still writing the big finish. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's making some great stories. I think, uh, it's probably the end of last year now, Hour, Hour of the Cybermen. It was a, uh, really, really cool, Sixth Doctor story that he wrote. Uh, it was the one where they got um, David Banks back to play the cyber leader, and um, I can't remember the actor's name, but the, the cyber lieutenant as well. It's the uh, it's the same same voice. Really nostalgic. The the music's really eighties on it. Uh, it's great, and then um, obviously really active in fandom as well. Andrew Smith, uh, really cool guy. In fact, you probably yeah. Some full circle, a terrific debut. So I think he was nineteen when he did Full Circle. Talk yeah. about getting it right your first time out. Definitely, yeah. Um, this um, probably uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. The the episode of the Writers' Room podcast that um, covers Full Circle. Andrew Smith actually joins um, Eric and Kyle on that one, and it's uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic episode. I'll um, I'll find a, a link to that and put it in the show notes. Yes, I would love to hear that again too. Yeah, it's uh, it's excellent. So at the end of uh, Full Circle. Adric joins the crew, although the, the Doctor and Romana don't realise it. Um, I think that's a really good way of uh, of a new companion joining. It's probably one of the few times we see that, isn't it? Of uh, kind of having a stowaway like that. Um, and even when they land on the next planet in State of Decay, they leave the TARDIS still unaware that uh, that Adric's been even even been aboard. And then Adric leaves the ship and automatically enrolls with the bad guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's a uh, recurring theme for Adric, always joining the wrong side. Yeah, yeah, especially in season 19, isn't it? He's uh, uh, with, with Monarch and everyone. Uh, but yeah, another... Uh, yes. 
brilliant story, really, uh, really great villains and everything, and uh, just a fantastic idea as well. Uh, the um, the idea of that huge vampire that, that lives underneath, and then you just see the hand at the end, um, and it's 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 a kind of a ancient time lord enemy before before that became such a, a kind of a recurring thing, didn't it? It's become a bit of a cliche now where, you know, so many aliens since then are, are ancient enemies of, uh, of the Time Lords. Uh, you know, you've, you've had like the, uh, the Rachnos and um, the, uh, the guy from Power of Three and stuff like that. Uh, this, uh, you know, at the time it was, it was quite a new idea and it, it elevated them as the great vampires as a threat. The, the when Terrence Dix was writing for the New Adventures books in the 1990s, he actually wrote a sequel to State of Decay called Blood Harvest, which revisits a lot of the moments from the story. And it also goes back to Gallifrey, and it has, I think, the vampires invade Gallifrey at the end of the book. Mm. That's not as successful as State of Decay. And then Terrence Dix brought the vampires back again in... I want to say World Game, which was his last book for BBC Books before they stopped publishing the past Doctor Adventures. So Terrence Dix has certainly got a lot of mileage out of State of Decay over the years. It's a story he revisits over and over again. Yeah, and it's, it's, the, um, it's the first one of those, is it sort of paired with, is it goth opera? The, is that a Paul Cornell, Fifth Doctor Story. Yes, they came out the same month. So Blood Harvest was the new adventure and Goth Opera was the missing adventure and it was the same villainous in each story. Yeah, that's she it. She went over one to the beginning of the next. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I remember that now. Yeah, I remember that. that they're quite early in the run, isn't it? Um, I remember that pairing. Yeah, it's good stories. Because Goth Opera was the first missing adventure. Yeah, that's right. It's got a picture of uh, Nyssa as a vampire on the front, hasn't it? Yeah, it's cool, that one. I think I think they had to edit the drawing for that because there was the original drawing. She had blood dripping down her mouth and the collar of her shirt. And they had to digitally remove a lot of the blood before the book could be released. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that being a little bit too, uh, bit too horrific. And after State of Decay comes Warrior's Gate. And I will confess, when I was 11 years old, I had no idea what was going on in Warrior's Gate. And the story didn't speak to me at all. Now that I'm older and I get a lot of the visual references and I can follow the concepts, it's a very clever story. I think Warrior's Gate has become one of my favorites in a way that I was not expecting the first time that I saw it as an 11 or 12-year-old. Yeah, definitely. Um, and what's even more impressive about it is that Stephen Gallagher was in his late 20s when he wrote it. Mm. And he writes a script that says the E Ching and has a lot of recursion and has a lot of cynical workplace humor. When I was 28, I would not have been capable of writing at that level of complexity the way that he did. No, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's really, really good. And, and just the, the visuals as well, absolutely fantastic. The, the, the white landscape, um, and then you just, you've just got the TARDIS, the ship, and the, and the gate uh, as the only things on it. Looks and like you have the characters walking through black and white landscapes. Yeah. And the Pharaoh. The Tharos looked terrific. The Tharos, the Tharos makeup was really strong. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Really and good. And the show, they weren't getting really good makeup jobs on the monsters. The Tharos looked really good. Mm. Yeah, and just uh, all cool ideas, like the um, when the ship first hits the, um, I think it's a time rift or whatever it is at the start, and the coin 
suspended in the air. That's just not the kind of visual kind of flourishes that you're used to seeing in Doctor Who. The, um, the direction is really, really strong. And if memory serves me right, the director of that story got fired halfway through production, so they ended up having to bring him back because nobody else knew how to do what he was trying to do. Right, I didn't realize that. I believe I got that anecdote from the Blu-ray, from the, uh, from the uh, original DVD release, from the text commentary. I'm not trying to libel anybody, but I, I believe that is what happened. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it looks good because even though you, you've got some slightly ropey CSO on the, um, where you've got all the black and white sort of gardens and stuff that they're walking through, I think that adds to the sense of unreality to it as well, whereas if they'd just had the Doctor walking through that landscape and, uh, I mean, I don't know whether they've had the technology to have the Doctor in colour and, um, and, and make the rest of it black and white in those days. Um, but yeah, I think that for, for once the CSO works because it it adds to the, the, the surrealness of it. Right, a very, very creative, visually inventive story, which yeah. compared to season 17, which is visually very static, mm. it's a very nice bit of television to look at. Yeah, And, the and along the same lines, Keeper of Trocken is just a gorgeously written story. Yeah, And I was able to send Sonny Byrne fan mail about it when he first joined Records Doctor Who in the early 90s. Ah, brilliant. Love Keeper of Trocken. Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? And then I guess one of the big legacies um, of that is um, it's the the master that Big Finish most use, I think, isn't it, as well? Um, really bad today for, for uh, recalling actors' names. It's Caroline John's husband, isn't it? Jeffrey Beavers. Yes, Jeffrey Beavers, yeah. he's um, They use him a lot for, uh, for Big Finish, um, and he's got such a great voice. Uh, even the, the 50th anniversary Big Finish story, The Light at the End, um, the master's in that as, as the main villain. He's, uh, it's really, um, really elevated his portrayal of it. Um, you know, in and he has also narrated a lot of the Target audiobooks that have come out. So he's, he's got mm. a very good voice. Yeah. Yeah, really good. And, uh, and great ideas in it. And uh, uh, yeah, like you say, the, I was saying at the beginning about the themes of, uh, of prolonging life and all that kind of stuff. You've got the, uh, the, the, the source and everything that needs to be um, needs to be tended by a new keeper every few centuries. Yeah, it does. Uh, it looks great that as well. Um, and the introduction of Nissa, of course, who wasn't intended to be a new companion, um, but then was um, retroactively. Because I think when I was a kid watching it, that was the biggest surprise. Was uh, I guess the end of that story and. Nissa doesn't, because I, I say having watched these in a jumbled up order and I'd probably seen some Peter Davison stories with Nissa in, um, when she doesn't leave in the TARDIS at the end, it was, uh, I remember being quite surprised by that. For me, I remember the very first bit of Doctor Who that I ever experienced was the Legopolis novelization. So I knew about her before I'd even seen Legopolis or Keeper of Trocken on TV. Yeah. Less of a surprise for me. But she's, Sarah Sutton is wonderful, and the character is just so much potential. Yeah. And they're still using the character now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I, I think for uh, for a while with, with Big Finish, because they didn't have Janet Fielding, didn't have Matthew Waterhouse, there's, there's a lot of stories with Peter Davison and Sarah Sutton, uh, I guess set between Time Flight and Arc of Infinity, 
when they were traveling together. So there's, uh, there's, a, there's a good few stories uh, slotted into there. And um, one, it's great because Peter Davison, as we know, kind of works really well with one companion as well. Um, and it allows her to, to do a lot more and, uh, and, and really come into the forefront. And they also had a series where they had Tegan and Turlow and the Fifth Doctor after Terminus, and Big Finish brought an older Nissa back oh, later in life to travel in the TARDIS again, along with young Tegan and young Turlow. Yeah. Which yeah. is a very inventive use of the character. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it was nice to see Big Finish getting some, uh, uh, getting some, uh, some love from uh, Tom Baker and, and John Leeson as well on one of the Behind the Sofas. I can't remember which one it was. Um, but how much they enjoyed it and, and how good they were. Because uh, outside of Big Finish and Big Finish podcasts and stuff, you don't maybe um, often hear the actors talk about it um, in interviews. So it was, uh, it was good to see them getting some recognition in that. Definitely. And that brings us full circle, talking about Legopolis, the very last story on the disc. Mm-hmm. And again, one of my favorites, it was my first story in many ways, and just watching it again last night, I was so impressed with how sharp the dialogue just flows, it crackles, the story just moves, and I was not bored for a moment. Yeah. So it remains one of my favorites. Yeah, it's really strong, isn't it? Really good, really great script, and uh, and the ideas, the, the TARDIS within the TARDIS, that's... Uh, it's a, it's a kind of really strong visual thing, and it's the one they've used on the, the menu for this, this Blu-ray set as well, um, where they, they do the sort of the renders of the TARDIS console as it was in the, in the season, uh, and this has got the second TARDIS in that control room as well. Yes. Looks really, really nice. Yeah. And now we have to wait two or three more months before the season 10 Blu-ray comes out. Yeah, it's uh, July, I think, isn't it? Uh, I'll probably have just finished all the extra material on season 18 by the time I'm ready for season 10. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they've worked that out, like how uh, how long it's going to take the average person to watch a full set and then have the next one ready to to come out the as as the uh, as the finishing up. They're overestimating how much free time I have, sure. <laughs> uh, and July also sees the release of Eric Sayward's novelization of Resurrection of the Daleks, which I think will be the next podcast that we're planning. I am very looking forward to that. I will have a lot to say. Yeah, I'm very interested to see to see what he's done with that. Um, going to be going to be the probably the longest gap between writing the script and writing the novelization in terms of having the same writer do it. Um, with, with all the benefit of hindsight and everything else. So, uh, yeah, I'm fascinated to see what happens with that one. It is a story infamous for none of the characters having first names, and I'm curious mm-hmm. to see if they'll rectify that for the novelization. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely something to look out for. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because it's, uh, it's got quite um, quite kind of wide scope on it where you know the Daleks planning to invade Gallifrey but it doesn't really go anywhere or you know kind of really uh, really threaten the Time Lords but with the, the, the you know the invention of the Time War since then it can, I wonder if he'll tie it into 
later continuity of the show, um, you know, part of that conflict or, uh, you know, kind of an opening salvo of, of the time war as Genesis of the Daleks is seen. We will continue the discussion in July. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me back on. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening at home. Uh, Join me next week when Eric Stadnick and I will be talking Scream of the Schalke. Uh, In the meantime, uh, where we can find you on Twitter, Jason? At Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels. And I will put a link to that and your excellent blog in the show notes. Thank you so much. Good night now. Thank you very much. Goodbye. (laughs) 